stool. There we go. All right, so welcome to Redeemer Fellowship. Um, obviously, I'm John, because that's what Eric just said. Uh, we are continuing in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, where we've been examining the teachings of Jesus from his famous Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we are going to be in the next section in chapter 6. We're actually going to skip a few Past a few uh, portions of this particular chapter because next week we're going to just dive into the Lord's Prayer specifically. But um, before we get started, let me pray and then let's see what the Lord has. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for how much you love your people, Father. Um, and I pray this morning, Lord, that as we look into your word, that you would that you would convict us of sin, Father. That you would draw us near to yourself, Father. That we would leave here encouraged. Um, but we would also leave your challenge, Lord, to follow you uh, more faithfully, Lord God. So we ask this in your son's most precious name. Amen. So before we jump into the text, if you do have a bulletin in front of you, we'll be following a simple outline that's right there in your bulletin and, um, and the text right there. And um, the main point is actually up there too. So if you are curious where we're heading, it's right there for you. But before we jump in, I wanted to read you something, a lengthy quote from C.S. Lewis in, in an essay entitled The Weight of Glory. And follow me, I have a portion of it up on the screen, but that's just the end of it. So just follow me as I, I read this. It says this, it says, if you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. You see what has happened, a negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of secure, securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in itself not self-denial as an end in itself we're told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow christ and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, the things that we desire as humanity and what we have access to don't seem to line up. They don't seem to match. Because what the scripture tells us that we have access to is God Almighty himself. We have access to a relationship with the one who spoke creation into existence, yet many of us, even as followers of Jesus, struggle with this idea of trying to please ourselves with these temporal things that all of us are tempted by. Every single one of us. And what Lewis is getting at is that there's actually something so much more profound waiting for us. But he also talks about this idea of a reward. Because often we're told that if we desire any sort of reward, that that's actually some sort of selfish ambition. But what what the New Testament gets at and what Lewis is trying to point out is that reward is what drives humanity. That the ultimate securing of something because of the work we have done is what drives us, is what inspires us to keep on moving forward. So this idea that we do something for some sort of return 
as being selfish is profoundly unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And that's actually what we're going to see in our text this morning. And I want you to keep this in your mind as we travel too. We have access to so much, yet we are content to settle for so little. We have access to so much, yet we are content to settle for so little. So let's take a look at our text in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at just verse 1 and just 1 at first here. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven so jesus what he's doing here he's continuing his instruction by unpacking the sort of righteousness practiced by both the hypocrites and those who truly are following god rt france says it like this he says this discourse warns against the wrong kind of righteousness the wrong kind of righteousness which is undertaken not to conform to the will of God and to imitate his perfection, but to gain human approval. The people who practice this sort of righteousness are hypocrites. And that's kind of scary. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, there's two ways to practice righteousness. Right here, right from the jump, we see it right in the first part of the text. There's two ways. The first way is so that other people might see us and give us some sort of accolade and some sort of praise and some sort of honor, or we do it with a desire to be seen by God who is in heaven, right? So to be seen by others or to be seen by God. That's what Jesus is putting forth right now. Who do we want to be seen by? Whose gaze are we looking to draw upon ourselves? That's the question that he's putting forth before us. And that's the question all of us need to wrestle with as we live out our lives, right? This isn't an academic question. Even though that quote was somewhat like academic in nature, this is how we live our lives. Who are we dancing for? Who are we performing for? Whose approval are we seeking? He goes on. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues that, and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your tithing may be in giving, excuse me, and be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what we got here is that he gives you this general statement in verse 1, and then he's going to show us how this stuff works out. Similar to what we looked at last week, he gives you this general idea, and then he gives you some patterns about how this looks in our regular lives. And what we're dealing with in this particular text is, is how we live out our religion, how we live out our Christian faith, how we do religious practices like giving to the poor, like praying, like fasting. These are the things we're dealing with here. And I think of it like this, right? When I was a kid, I worked at a pharmacy, and for some reason they let like 15-year-olds work the lottery counter. It's confusing to me, but we did it. And I wasn't a Christian then, so, you know, do with that as you will. But we worked the lottery counter, and people would come in, and they would, you know, pick their numbers, and they would, and I would always have to ask, cash or annuity? Right, if anyone's ever played lottery, you know that question, cash or annuity. And what that means is, if you win, cash means you get it all now. Well, not all, because they take a ton of taxes out, and they give it to you now. Annuity means that they will pay it to you little by little over time, and you actually get more money. And I always thought in my head, I'm like, I'm like, what would I do if I won the lottery? Would I want it all up front, minus a big amount, or would I want to wait till later to have it then? Now, as a kid, I wanted cash. I wanted it all then, right? As a 15-year-old, you want it all now, 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 right? As I get older, I think if I were to play the lottery, which I don't because I... Like, I went to AC one time, and I put a dollar in the slot machine, and I lost, and I sat there, and I'm like, man, that was a, I could have, like, bought a pack of gum with that, and I'd still have it. Um, but anyway, neither here nor there. My point is, is that I think now, if I wanted to win the lottery, I would want annuity. I'd want to get paid every year on that money. And that's kind of what we're looking at, like, similar, not really, but it's kind of. What kind of reward do we want? Do we want one now that pleases us now, or do we want one 
in heaven. And if you remember the Beatitudes, there is this idea, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So all these things that we're blessed for and what the blessings are grounded in is this promise of some sort of eschatological, that big word meaning end times, hope. Some sort of eschatological hope, some sort of promise that is given to us at the end. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. So he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. So the first thing I want to point out is it says, when you give to the needy. That's really important for us to catch. Each of these starts with that word when. Meaning that the assumption is that this stuff's happening. That, that the people whom he is talking to from the mountaintop are engaged in giving to the poor, in providing for the needs of others. So as we read this now, looking at our own lives, the question is, are we doing this? If not, then, then this might not even apply because we need to actually fix the first thing. Do we give to those who are in need? Because the assumption is, is that we are. When you give to the needy. When you do that. And that's a challenge to us. And i got to be honest, this is one of the ones, and there's a question in your community group um, questions that deals with what is the thing that you struggle with most? Whether it's prayer and fasting or giving. And i got to be honest, this one's the hard one for me. Because, because money for most of us is tight, right? And, and giving money away when things are already tight, you're kind of thinking like, man, this is really hard. I, I don't want, like, I can pray. Praying doesn't cost me much. Fasting Fasting's good for you, like it actually cleanses your body, and, and, and so it's not like a major cost, but giving, is a, it's a cost. And that's one of the ones, i got to be honest with you, that's a struggle for me. That's a struggle for me. But he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street corners. And this word, hypocrites, I want to talk about this word. And we're going to do a lot of technical stuff in this first section, and then the rest of them kind of just follow suit. But a hypocrite is basically someone who is intentionally play-acting. Like they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They're intentionally putting out something that's different from reality. They're intentionally putting out something that's different from reality. And what they're seeking are the praises from others. And that word, too, another word, there's so many like, like, packed words here. This praise is actually the same word for glory. They're seeking glory from others. Think about that. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That we might seek glory from others. The beautiful part about the Christian life, and we talked about this a little bit last week, is that we do receive glory. We do receive glory. In fact, we were created with glory. Remember, remember the, in Psalm 8 that humanity is crowned with glory. And what we have happening here are people seeking glory elsewhere. And there are some other stories in the scripture that should be popping into your head right now, like Adam and Eve in the garden. They said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. You may not eat. And what did they want? They wanted to be like God. Because that's the, that's the promise. For God knows when you eat of it, you will be like him. But what they forgot is that they were already like him. They were already like him. Because the Bible tells us that we are the image of God. That we have been crowned with glory and honor. Yet they were seeking to be like God when they already had that in their hands. To be praised by others. Think of the Tower of Babel. They were trying to ascend the heights, to reach heaven, to be like God. Forgetting that they were already made to be like God. God. Who are we seeking glory from? Who are we seeking? Which, which, 
which person or group of people are we seeking approval from? Because what Jesus is getting at, that we perform for an audience of one. And you've heard that. That's like somewhat of a Christian cliche, but it's real. It's a real cliche. And I think as I was studying this, I, I, I was studying, I was working on this, and, and I went for like a 20-minute walk across the street in the park, and I had this aha moment. And I'm thinking in my brain, I'm like, I'm like I think I get what this text is about. Who are we seeking to be seen by? Because I believe many of us have traveled through this life feeling as though we've been unseen. Feeling as though we've been neglected in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a, a strained relationship with a parent or a strained relationship with a spouse or whatever the case may be, you feel invisible. But the beauty of this text what it says here, it says, when you give to the needy, that they may be praised by it. Truly I say to you, they have received their award. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Our father sees us. Our father sees you. Whatever it is that you might be going through, he sees you. His eyes are locked on you. And the faithfulness in which we live our lives brings joy to our Father. And he's pleased by it. That he sees you. I was, I've been reading to my kids through the Chronicles of Narnia, and we're reading uh, The Horse and His Boy. And if you've ever read this book, there's this one scene in that story where, where, oh, what's his name? What's the dude's name? Someone help me. What's the boy's name? Shasta. Yeah, Shasta finally meets this creature that has been plaguing him, and I use that word intentionally, plaguing him throughout the book. And, and he said, and he's like, and he finally gets a glimpse of him, and it's a lion, and it is Aslan. Aslan's saying, I was with you on the boat when you were a child, and I pushed that boat to shore so you would be safe. I was with you as you were running away from the enemies, and I was even scratching at the back of Aravis, I believe, so that you would ride faster. And I was scaring you so that you might ride faster because danger was lurking behind you. But the reality is, is that Aslan saw them. And Aslan saw Shasta the entire time and was with him the entire time. And what needed to happen often in that particular story is that Shasta needed to be kind of pushed. He needed to see some sort of reward out ahead and some sort of, like, not reward coming from behind so that he would move towards that reward. And that's the, the reality. C.S. Lewis is so brilliant because the way he paints the Christian faith for us in, in narrative form. But that's the reality of the Christian faith is that our Father in heaven sees us. Our Father in heaven sees us. And he's calling us to be faithful. And he's calling us to be faithful in how we live our lives. And how we live our lives will either receive a reward in the days to come, eschatologically, that big word, or a reward now. And the question we need to be asking ourselves is which reward are we seeking after? Which reward are we seeking after? And the reality is that there is a reward. In fact, that word, right, I entitled the sermon this morning, seen by the Father, our righteous wage. That word that stands for reward means compensation or wage, like what you would get paid for doing something which kind of messes with our categories, right? As, as those who hold to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that, that, kind of, that kind of messes with our categories a bit. But what Jesus is getting at is that as we follow him faithfully, he is going to reward us. Now that reward is somewhat ambiguous. We don't really know what that reward is, but I tell you where the reward starts. It starts with the gaze of our Father upon us. The gaze of our Father upon us. I want to flip to Numbers chapter 6. And I just want to read to you the ironic blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them. And what does he say? He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up 
his countenance upon you and give you peace. In other words, the Lord looks at you. The Lord looks at you. In the message paraphrase, it says it like this. Eugene Peterson says that that God looks you square in the face. Square in the face. That's the father that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a God who sees us. And I'm hoping that that brings comfort to many of you this morning. I'm hoping that brings an encouragement to many of you. I'm also hoping for those of you who are intentionally play-acting that you're trembling right now. I do. Because that's grace if you're trembling. That's the Lord actually coming to you and saying, no, 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 I see you regardless, but my sight right now is not one that's shining upon you. My sight right now is one that's warning you. Because God is omnipresent, omniscient, that means all-knowing, all present, (laughs) kind (laughs) of, and he sees you, he sees you. I'm going to say that a lot this morning, he sees you, because I want us to walk out this morning knowing full well that our Father in heaven has his eyes fixed upon you, he's fixed upon you. The expectation is, in this particular passage, That we care for the needs of others. And specifically the financial needs of others. But we need to examine why we do what we do. Are we seeking to be glorified by others or to be seen by God? Where are we seeking glory from? The text goes on. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And at the street corners that they may be seen by others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Again, the emphasis is on when you pray. When you pray. Are you praying? Are we spending the time before God? And that's going to look different for a variety of people. And next week we're going to really dig into what prayer ought to look like. But what Jesus wants to just get out in front first, it's like, you're praying, right? Like that's kind of what it says. Like when you pray, it's like, you're praying, right? So now let me explain to you how that works. Like, Like, you're giving to the needy, right? Cool. Now let's talk about why you give to the needy. You're praying, right? Let's talk about why. You you fast, right? So let's talk about why. The assumption is that we are doing the things laid out for us. And here we have the hypocrites are back. Remember the play actors. What does it say about the hypocrites? It says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? Why? That they might be seen by others. I, I got to talk about it because I forgot to when we first jumped in, but, but chapter 5, 16, it says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Like, what's the difference, right? Because we're talking about how we don't want to be seen by others as we practice our religion, as we practice the Christian faith. But then 5.16 says, perform your good works before others so that they might glorify your heaven. The whole idea is, is the so that. Like, why are we doing it? If we are performing our good works, if we are doing religion, if we are practicing Christianity before others with the sole intention that our Father in heaven might receive glory, and the word glory shows up in 516, I believe, it sure does, or are we seeking our own glory? And that's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Why do we do what we do? Do we want our Father to get glory, or do we want us to get glory? The same word is used twice. I don't think that was an accident. Because the biblical writers are so intentional with their language. And Matthew is such a dynamite storyteller, how he captures the words of Christ for us. Are we seeking to glorify our Father in heaven, or are we seeking to be praised or glorified by others. That's the difference between how we do our good works. It's not saying that the only time we should pray is in a closet with the door shut. 
That can't be what it means. Because there are plenty of times in the scriptures where we see people faithfully praying in public. It can't be that. And again, what we see that Jesus is doing is he's getting at the heart. He's getting at the heart. This entire sermon, he's getting at the heart. He's expecting behavior, but he wants to understand and he wants us to analyze why we're doing what we do. Why are we doing what we do? He goes on, he says, not like the, not like the, gen, um, the hypocrites, but then he talks about the Gentiles too. He's like, you don't want to be like the hypocrites, and you also don't want to be like the Gentiles. And, and basically what he's getting at there, it's like, it's like you don't want to be like trying to convince your God of something. Right? The Gentiles worshipped all sorts of deities, and they're like, they had to like jump through hoops to get their God's attention. And what he's saying is like, no, 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 like, do you even know who your father is? You don't have to go on and, and repeating yourself over and over again and, and, and go through all sorts of rituals so that your Father in heaven sees you and knows what you need. He knows what you need. Why? Because he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So we don't have to dance and, and perform tricks. That was me, Dan. I don't know if you caught that. We don't have to dance or perform tricks to be seen by our God. And that's what the Gentiles thought that they had to do a little dance or a little jig to be noticed by their God. We don't have to do that. That's what he's getting at. Because he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what we need. He knows why, because he sees you. Redeemer Fellowship. Your Father in heaven sees you. Please let that sink into you deeply. That as you walk through this life, he is with you the same way Aslan was with Shasta throughout his entire life. Our heavenly Father is with us and he sees you. He sees you in secret. He sees you in public. He sees you no matter what you're doing. Again, that should either bring comfort or it should be making us tremble right now. I suspect for most of us it brings comfort. Because I suspect that most of us are not play acting. Because the reality is if you're sitting here and you're wondering, am I play acting? Am I a hypocrite? There's chances are you're not. Like because you do want to honor God. The hypocrites in this room, they know exactly who they are. They know exactly who they are. And that's a scary place to be. But I think for the most of us, what we need to walk away from this text with this morning is comfort and encouragement that our Father in heaven, who loves us, who loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, who loves us so much that he rose again, that he sees you. He sees you. It also talks about this idea of of that our Father knows what we need before we ask Him. And that, that might bring in some confusion about, like, why do we pray then? And, and that's a hard question to answer. And for those of us who, who hold to the sovereignty of God, um, like, well, then what am I doing? Shouldn't, shouldn't God just kind of do what He does without my participation? But, but the reality is, as we travel through the Bible, our participation is demanded by God. And whether we understand how that plays out, is really not the point. The fact is, is he demands it. He demands our participation. He demands our faithfulness. And so he also demands that we pray to him. And, and we need to see this not as some sort of demand or command, like you shall pray or else, but, but hey, you want to come talk to the guy who spoke creation into existence? You want to talk to that guy? It's, a, it's one of those get to sort of things, not got to. We get to engage with the Father. We get to engage with the Father. R.T. France, again, he says it like this, Christian spirituality has traditionally found the answer to the concept of prayer, not as the communication of information, but as the expression of the relationship of trust, which follows from knowing God as Father. And even that concept, that God as Father, because many of us might have had dads who just, they were horrible. That might be the reality for many of you in this room. That as you hear that term father, it kind of messes with your brain a little bit because you didn't have an example of that. 
But what God is putting forth is that he's not that father. He's a good dad who's faithful, who's always with you. As Aslan was with Shasta throughout his entire life, he's there, he's present, he's not going anywhere. He's not going to treat us unfairly. In fact, he is going to treat you unfairly in that he's going to lavish grace upon you when you don't deserve it. That's the nature of our father. And that might be a very difficult thing for many of us in this room to wrap our minds around. But the truth of the matter is, is that the Father, as he's presented in the Holy Scriptures, is a good, faithful, loving God who cares for his children more than we can ever comprehend. And he sees you. He goes on. We're going to jump into the fasting section here in verse 16. So we're going to skip over the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to get to it next week. And he says, and when you fast, again, the assumption is you are fasting, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And again, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's something really cool here. Um, there's a little wordplay that he uses with this whole, they disfigure their faces that they may be seen by others. It's, the words in Greek are afanizo and phino, if you care about that. But basically what he's saying is they make their faces invisible that they might become visible. Right? It's kind of cool how he just plays with words a little bit to kind of grab the attention of his audience. He makes, they make their faces invisible that they might become visible. There's some irony to that. In other words... They want people to see their struggle. They want people to see how holy they are, how dedicated they are to the faith. And they want people to say, oh my gosh, you look horrible. I know, I know, I'm fasting. I'm fast. and, it's, and it's all for the Lord. It's all for the Lord. Yeah, okay. Doesn't sound like it, but hey, you know, you do you. But that's basically what he's getting at. And, right, and we've met people like this, and, and maybe we've been this person. And maybe we can think back over our walk with Jesus where we've done this sort of thing. And Jesus is saying, like, don't do that. Don't do that. Basically, when you fast, take a shower, put on deodorant, and kind of quit the false humility. Bragging so that we might be recognized for our piety or righteousness, right? That's the wrong type of righteousness the wrong type of righteousness remember we're dealing with the proper method of practicing or doing righteousness are we looking to impress others so that we might be regarded as more spiritual or are we looking to honor and please our father in heaven who are we looking for who are we who are we performing for i think of this concept of of seeing and the idea of like this positive reward that we get when God sees us living a faithful life. And, and there are times, and I don't know if others of you have experienced this, where you are maybe watching your kids from a distance if you have kids. And have you ever done this where you watch your kids from a distance? You're watching them do their thing. You see them. You see them playing maybe with their brother or sister, with their friends. And, and you see the funny things they do because when kids don't realize they're being watched, they do weird stuff. Like they just do. It is what it is. Um, and we all did it, it's fine. But, but there are times where you see your children and, and you see them maybe like helping out their little brother or sister or, or picking up their little brother or sister when they fell and scraped their knee or you see them sharing their toy unexpectedly where like you're like, oh wow, look at that. Or you see them you know, caring for maybe one of their like playmates or friends who was like left out, like they were just kind of sitting on their own. They go over to them and they sit them and you see them. And what happens when you see that? Like, you just, you kind of smile. Like, you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know where they learned that from because I didn't. How did they get that? Like, that's what I do. I'm like, did I teach? I don't think I taught them that. Like, but, but, right? Like, it's, and it brings this joy. Like, you well up inside because you see your child doing something that's almost out of character for a child. And it, and it brings you joy. And then, and then when they come in, if you've ever had this experience where you get to tell them what you saw. You tell them what you saw, and what happens to them? They just beam. And there's this pride. And, and that's a good pride. Like, that's okay. 
because they're being recognized for the good that they're doing. And they weren't doing it to be, to impress. They were doing it because they genuinely wanted to do what was right. They wanted to please mommy and daddy because the reality is that little kids want to please mommy and daddy. And when they know they did, and they know they did, and they didn't even realize you saw it, man, they are just, they're beaming. And I imagine that's what it's like for the father as he looks at his covenant people at the church as they're following faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. That when we give to the needy, we're doing it to receive a reward in heaven. That when we pray, we're doing it so that our Father in heaven sees us. That when we fast, we're doing it so that we might be drawn near to our Father in heaven. That pleases God. That pleases God. And that is our reward, at least the start of our reward. Remember Deuteronomy 6, number 6, that was prayed over the people of Israel, that God would look them square in the face. That Yahweh God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the covenant name of God in the Old Testament as it's translated into English, that that God would look them square in the face. That's the promise. That's the promise. That's what God wants for us. And he goes on in this last verse, this last section that we're going to look at. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Basically, Jesus is saying, stop trying to seek glory from others. Stop. It's not worth it. In fact, it's a bad investment. It's a bad investment because it doesn't last. Jesus wants us to understand that the best reward is given to us by our Father. And that it starts with capturing his gaze. It starts with capturing his gaze. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. It's, it's dangerous to store up treasure on earth. It's not going to bring us what we think it's going to bring us. And it's a rat race that doesn't end well for anyone, regardless of how much money we procure. And, and there is definitely a financial emphasis here. He's talking about treasure. He's talking about something financial. And he's saying, you can make all the money in the world. You can have all the resources in the world. You can have everything. That's not what I'm looking for. And that's what is confusing about the Christian faith as we even go back to the Beatitudes. Who are the ones that bring joy to God's heart? It's those who are struggling in this life. It's those who are experiencing pain in this life. It's poor. It's poverty. Like, these are the things that God looks upon. It's like, i got to take care of those people. And that's why Jesus says it's really hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom because they don't, in their minds, need any other treasure. They have all the treasure they need according to them. But the real treasure of eternal life is in heaven with God, our Father. And that's what he's getting at. He's like, he's like, you might have it all, and you might think that what you have is going to secure you, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work for you. Because our treasure is in heaven with Jesus, Almighty God. And that's whom we need to be looking to as we live our life and we seek to be faithful followers of Jesus. He, he wants to give us so much, yet we settle for so little. We're that little boy in C.S. Lewis's quote, fuddling around with mud pies when a holiday at the sea is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. And God is saying, I have it all. And I want to give it to you. Follow me. Follow me. And the reality is, is that to be seen by God, there's, there's this hint of glory in that. 
And, and what Romans tells us, and I know I say this often, that if we are to be, we will be glorified with Christ provided we suffer with him. He's calling us to pick up our crosses and follow him. And that means that, that there's going to be sacrifice in this life. And the Sermon on the Mount is getting at that. There's this, there's this self-sacrificial way of life, but not just for the sake of being self-sacrificial. It's not this like weird sort of like, let me just give up everything and there's, there's no, like whatever, right? That's what true goodness is. That's what true virtue is, to be completely unselfish. No, there's a selfish bent to the Sermon on the Mount. But that selfish bent is, is, is leading us to God who is in heaven. So yes, we perform for the hope of receiving compensation, wage, reward that is in heaven with God. And we do this through the power of the Holy Spirit because we have bent the knee to King Jesus. That's how we do this faithfulness. Like, we don't want to get confused with this. Because I, I perceive that much of what I'm saying could be misconstrued that we need to work our way into heaven. And that's the trickiest part about the Sermon on the Mount. That we look at and we think like, okay, well, I got a lot of work to do. Like, yeah, you do, but it's spirit-wrought work. It's spirit-empowered work. Because those of us who have put our faith in Jesus are given this, the same power that rose him from the dead lives in us so that we can walk with him. And it's got to be that. It's got to be that. And the reality is, is that we do need to examine ourselves to see whether we're not in the faith. Because if we are like the hypocrites and we're play acting and we are not caring for the poor and we are not praying and we are not fasting and, and we are continuing to lust without care and we are murdering people in our hearts and we are not loving our enemies and we are whatever, you know, you go through the whole thing and we're doing all those things without a care in the world, without any sort of desire to... To, to repent and change and become more and more human, then the question is, well, do we actually believe in this, this God who has been revealed to us in Scripture? Do we believe in Him? Because the reality is, if we're sitting here and, and, and we're not moved to want to follow Him more faithfully, we need to ask ourselves that question. We need to ask ourselves that question. Where is our treasure? Where is our treasure? And I love how he closes that. For where your treasure is there, your heart is. So if our treasure is in heaven, that's where our heart is. That's where our heart is. And that's what God is calling us to. To examine what do we value? What pleases us? What are we looking for? And for many in this room, it's a simple answer. Jesus. Jesus, I want to be with him for all eternity. Some of you in this room might be struggling with that question. Some of you in this room might not be sure. And if that's you, you need to know that God sees you. And he is calling you this day. He's saying, come to me, repent, cast your sin aside. I've died for that. I've risen for it. Please come, bend the knee to me, believe in me, and you will have eternal life. So that no longer will your treasure consist of what is in this world, but your treasure will consist of what is in heaven. Come follow me. And it's not going to be an easy walk. In fact, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life. But I promise you that there is joy everlasting. Joy everlasting if you come and follow me. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And he does it, and we can watch him do it throughout the Gospels, throughout his stories that are captured in the New Testament for us, and he's calling us to go and do likewise. We are seen by the Father who is in heaven. We will be with him for all eternity, and we will receive our promised glory in full. There is reward, there is a compensation, and there is a wage and it is awaiting us. It is awaiting us. And while we might not feel it in this life, it's there for us. The promise is there. We were driving here this morning, and 
we spent some time with my family over the weekend, and we were talking. We were talking about my grandmother who had, had, had passed away when I was a kid. And I just, like, this morning I just got really, like, overwhelmed by that. I was, like, really sad. Um, and, again, this was, like, I was in fifth grade when this happened. And so, like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't make me sad, but, like, it does. It makes me sad. And that's, and the reason why I bring that up is because it does feel as though in this life there is just so much sadness. There's so much brokenness. There's so much pain. There's so much sorrow. And that's just the reality of this life. But in the midst of that, Redeemer, in the midst of that, we have a God. We serve a God in heaven who has his eyes fixed upon each and every one of you. And he loves you and he's walking with you no matter what it is that you're going through. And so as we do come to the table this morning, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm, I'm asking that you come Knowing that he sees you. Knowing that he sees you and that he loves you. Knowing that if you have put your faith in him, that you are known by the Father. That you are known by the Father. This is our reward, that through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we serve God and others, that we are seen by him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. I thank you that because you stepped into this world and rescued us from our sin, that now we have such a relationship with you that not only do you care for us, but that you are intimately involved in our lives, seeing us as we go through each day. That in our tears you see us, in our pain you see us, in our sorrows you see us, in our joy you see us, Father. And as we walk faithfully, you're pleased by us, Father. I thank you for that, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Redeemer Fellowship, as the ushers come forward to distribute the elements for communion, it's an ancient meal that Christians have practiced for over 2,000 years, commemorating the death of Jesus. Please consider what you've heard this morning. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke bread and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Redeemer, the Lord sees you. The Lord wants to meet with you, and he wants to be with you. If you are not a Christian and you are here, we ask that you remain in your seats. Consider what you've heard this morning. If you have any questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, please come talk to one of us. I'll be hanging out over at the Connect table. You can come and ask any questions you want. The elders will and their wives will be available to pray for you if there's anything that you might need to be praying for. We have gluten-free bread in the front over here, and if you come up the aisles, you can grab bread and a cup of juice as you go. So come when you're ready.